going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have a special guest, Dr. Anthony J., who I'm super excited to have on the line. We're going to dive into a whole bunch of things that I have very little knowledge of. I'm going to play ignorant, but I'm not going to have to play too hard. So without further ado, how are you, Dr. J.? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm doing wonderful as well. So give give the audience a little little intro on to on on you, kind of where you're coming from and what brings you into this space in the first place. Yeah, so I I got interested in artificial estrogens, which is what I wrote my book about. Um actually back way back in college when I was a biology major, they I, I went to college in Florida and they were doing orientation and somebody said during the orientation they had one of these city officials in and they said there's a lot of birth control in the water and that was new to me that was a completely new concept it kind of blew my mind and it was really concerning right? <laughs> obviously i don't want to be drinking birth control <clears throat> and uh and yeah it kind of i don't want to say blossomed because you know but it, it sparked a whole epiphany for me and it kind of carried on i started to realize oh it's not just birth control in the water there's also BPA, there's also phthalates, there's all these chemicals. And, you know, there's a ton of pharmaceuticals too, you know, like all these uh, anti-depression meds and all this stuff. But the thing is, you know, the, some of the filtrations gets that, but the city filters, you know, the city water, the municipal systems, they don't get rid of these artificial estrogen chemicals. Mm -hmm. And so when I ended up doing my PhD in biochemistry in Boston, you know, this was in the back of my mind. I actually did my PhD on hormones and lipids and fats, cholesterol. You know, I was working with testosterone. Um, and basically, you know, it culminated in this book on artificial estrogens because nobody was talking about it. And I see it as a real significant problem and, you know, a really under-discussed problem. And I think the reason for that in the scientific world is because... Um, you know, th there's a lot of toxicology studies. I'm sure you've seen things like this where they, mm -hmm. you know, they, they say, oh, this is the dose that will kill 50% of the rats, right? Like an LD50, they call it. So you can give aspirin to rats and then at a certain dose, you'll start killing them. And then, you know, you kind of do the math and you say, this is the toxic dose. And then in humans, you give far, far less than that. And then you should be okay, right? You're not going to kill people and maybe you'll have some side effects and you kind of keep your eyes open for that. and you know, you call it a day. But with these estrogen chemicals, it's unique because they work at such a small level. Number one, they work at the nanogram dose um, and they're not so toxic. They don't cause headaches. They don't cause bloating. They don't kill people immediately, you know, but they cause long-term problems by acting directly on your DNA. And that's a really unique situation because we're not really testing for that in conventional toxicology. So, you know, they're disrupting your hormones. They're causing, the, you know, the estrogen, when when cells bind, when a receptor binds estrogen, it actually, you know, most people understand the basics of a cell. It has a membrane and then there's DNA inside within its own membrane. It's called a nucleus. The nucleus mm -hmm. actually has its own membrane. Most people kind of forget that or they, they forget, you know, back from high school biology. Yet the DNA actually has another membrane. So a lot of things can get into cells. But not a lot of things can get into cells and get into the DNA, into the nucleus. But estrogen can, and so can these artificial estrogens when they bind the receptor. And that allows them to wreak havoc, havoc directly on the DNA. And so that can cause problems that last a long time. You know, they, you can see these problems 10 years later or something like that. 
And because there's a number of these chemicals, they act in an additive manner. So, you know, you add BPA, you add red food coloring, you add, you know, atrazine, which is a herbicide, you add soy, you start adding these on top of each other. And sometimes you see a compounded effect. You actually see more of an effect. It's not one plus one equals two. It can be one plus one equals three. Mm-hmm. You know, and that mathematically doesn't make sense, but biologically that makes sense. It actually amplifies the signal in your cells. And again, back to the toxicology, nobody's doing studies where they're in, in toxicology in that world. Nobody's doing studies with multiple chemicals to see how they're compounded. At least I shouldn't say nobody. There's a few studies and that's how I know this is there's enough research that shows it. But I mean, your conventional, your average toxicologist, they're not interested in multiple chemicals, you know, and how that's causing a compounded effect. And then the final thing is they store in your fat. So they, they're actually, they bioaccumulate, it's called bioaccumulation. And that causes another problem because, you know, they can last, they can store in your fat and the average fat cell uh, is a year and a half. And the fat cells can last 10 years. They've done research, they've done radioactive studies from people that were exposed to the atomic bomb and they find you know, again, the average fat cell a year and a half. So these, these estrogen chemicals are going into the fat cells. They're storing in the fat cells. And then, you know, that can kind of throw off the toxicology as well, because initially you might not see something. And then a year later, you might see something when you start burning that fat and that can cause plateaus and weight gains. You know, people, people have or weight loss, people have trouble losing the weight. So there's a lot of things going on with these artificial estrogen chemicals. And that's, obviously why i wrote a book on it man there's like a jillion different areas i want to dive into right now we're gonna, we're, about, we're about to go deep so audience needs to buckle up here but from a high level view just looking at estrogen as a whole why i mean like me as a bodybuilder i hear estrogen and i hear you know anti-anabolic basically like i'm, I'm not going to be as attuned to building muscle but for like the average person why would they need to be weary of you know excess estrogen and like what are some of the downsides and pitfalls of having too much estrogen Right. All these artificial estrogens, they lower your testosterone, number one. And that's that's free testosterone and total testosterone. So that's a big problem, you know, from a bodybuilder perspective. And then, mm-hmm. you know, so even if you're trying to optimize your testosterone, you're kind of fighting an uphill battle if you've got these estrogen chemicals. And they also do something that's a lot of people aren't talking about, but it's, you know, it's a real significant problem. It, and that is blocking the testosterone receptor. So even if you have higher levels of testosterone, which people don't these days, it keeps dropping and dropping. But let's say even if you had the high levels of testosterone, if you're blocking the receptor, it can't even be utilized. You know. So I, I kind of make an analogy to playing hockey because I used to play hockey. And you know, imagine that you put a piece of plywood in front of the goal, just completely covered the goal. You know, it doesn't matter if you've got 50 players on the ice smacking the puck at the goal. <laughs> you, you know, you, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how many players you have. You don't have an advantage anymore because you're not going to score goals, which is the whole point, you know, if you've got the, the goal blocked up. So these estrogen chemicals do that. And there's a medical doctor. I think his name is Keith Robertson, Dr. Robertson. He, uh, he calls it testosterone resistance. And I really like that. And uh, in other words, it's just like insulin resistance. People are becoming resistant Mm -hmm. to testosterone. So even when the levels are high, you still start seeing these problems. But then there's also the fat gains, right, which nobody wants. Nobody wants excess fat 
gains. Nobody's looking for fat gains. But these estrogen chemicals, they cause fat gains through this protein called PPAR gamma, P-P-A-R, and then the Greek letter gamma. Um, and so it's like a fat switch. You know, it's like flipping on a light switch. You flip, flip on a fat switch when you have these chemicals present. And what that does is it tells your body to store, it tells the individual cells to store more fat. And obviously that's a problem because you're, these chemicals are storing inside the fat and then they're telling the cells to store more fat. So it's a really vicious cycle where you're flipping on this fat switch all the time. And then the chemicals are just sitting in there continuously doing that. So, you know, there's other problems with fertility. You know, you start messing with these hormones, you see depression and, you know, a lot of them, you see, you see increases in breast cancer in women, huge increases. I mean, it's up like 500% in certain countries. It's up, you know, 250% since 1980 in America. Um, is there like an average, like, is there like any way of quantifying what, uh, you know, a typical healthy level of estrogen is in a male and female? And then what's in a male and female in today's day and age, just at the astronomical levels that it is? I'm glad you asked that because it's good background for people because most people assume there's a giant difference between men and women in terms of estrogen, but there's really not as big of a difference as people think. So in men, and, and by the way, it's nanograms, which are 10 to the minus ninth grams, which is just, I mean, that's 0.000000001 grams. That's a nanogram, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like such a tiny level. Historically, we haven't been able to accurately measure that consistently. Um, but now we can, and we're doing so. And men are about 20. They're between 20, 40, sometimes 80, 100. Um, but just say about 20 usually. And that's nanograms per liter. And then women are also about 20, depending on the time of the month, up to about 400. So it's not that big of a, it's not like men are at 20 and women are in 50,000 or something, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So women range a lot because, you know their cycles but you know 20 to 400 so what's crazy with these artificial estrogens is we're talking about thousands of like for example they've done a study on feedlot cows um you know they corn feed these cows for a few weeks before they slaughter them and the corn is loaded with this chemical called atrazine i already mentioned atrazine second most used herbicide in north america um totally illegal in europe you know, because it's estrogenic, it, it changes, mm -hmm. like, for example, atrazine changes male frogs into females at about 200 nanograms per liter, 200. And the legal allowable drinking level in America for our drinking water is 3000. Right. Wow. So there's a obvious problem there because, you know, frogs are sitting in the water, so you're going to see more of an effect, but still, right. We shouldn't be drinking any of it, in my opinion, but get this, right. The feedlot cows that I was mentioning, they're feeding them corn. The corn's loaded with atrazine. The, they've tested the blood of feedlot cows. So not, not I mean, the fat, yeah, it stores in the fat. Of course, you're going to find high, high levels in the fat. But what about the blood, right? The meat. They found 700,000 nanograms per liter in the blood of feedlot cows of atrazine. So when we are... What, what is their average... Uh, what, what is a cow supposed to have in it? Like if humans between 20 and... 40, 60, what is a cow? Honestly, I don't know what the cow's natural estrogen levels are, but, you know, it can't be. Not that <laughs> yeah, high, though. <laughs> can't be anywhere near that. And a lot of people talk about, you know, grass-fed versus feedlot meat. And, you know, I used to be in the camp. Personally, I used to think 
like, yeah, you don't, you know, with the fat, you got to be careful what fat you're eating, like bacon and things like that. You don't want, you know, because animals do the same things that people do. They store these toxins in their fat. You especially have to be careful with the fats. Mm -hmm. But then with the meat, you know, I, I used to say to people, it's not that big of a deal. This is when I was doing my PhD. But man, as I've dug into it more and more, again, it's not, you're not going to get a headache. You're not going to get bloating. You're not going to feel immediate difference. It's a long-term impact. And I, but I'm really concerned about it, you know, because the levels are so high and it's not the natural cow estrogen, it's the artificial estrogens that are in there. So like in the keto space, when people are, you know, doing the whole grain fed versus grass fed debate, they're oftentimes putting an emphasis on the omega profile, like the fatty acid profile of that meat. Whereas you're arguing that that might not make a huge difference where the emphasis needs to be placed on is the estrogen intake that you're consuming with one versus the artificial other. estrogen too. I'd even be more specific because, but that's exactly right. Yeah. Because again, if as soon as you say estrogen intake, people just automatically think of natural cow estrogen that the cows are making. And I'm not that worried about that because you're also intaking testosterone and there's a ratio there and your body can deal with that pretty well. Um, at least from this, what I've seen, <laughs> but these artificial estrogens, they're spiking so high. You can't overlook it. You know what I mean? It's that's a bigger factor. So yeah, I think that should be the central. I think that needs to be the central, you know, component of the whole debate on that issue, at least in my mind. And you said, yeah, and you said there was seven hundred thousand nanograms in in that cow study, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What what is it in like a, a grass fed cow? They tested that. Well, oh, shouldn't be any zero. Yeah. They didn't do that. They didn't, yeah, they didn't compare that in that particular study. But yeah, you're not going to find. I mean, if you're not feeding them atrazine, you're not going to get atrazine. It's almost like why bother doing the study? You know, I mean, you do find glyphosate sometimes at low levels, even in organic animals, because it comes out of the rain. You know, apparently the rain can pick it up, and you can get a little bit here and there, and then there's some drift in the atmosphere and all this other stuff. But you know, atrazine isn't as much like that. I interviewed. I used to work on three different farms in Minnesota. And I, as part of the research, when I was writing my book, I went back to one of these farms and I have a great relationship with the guy. He's a big hunter. I used to go coyote hunting with him and all this. And I went to his farm and now his son does the farming, but you know, he, he's still active and involved. And, and I asked him, you know, about atrazine and he said, Oh, I love atrazine. <laughs> so he said, yeah, glyphosate's good, but atrazine, I love atrazine because it stays on the ground longer. It, it, it like in boggy areas. Mm -hmm. that's where he, that's where he especially likes to use atrazine because it, it doesn't get washed away like glyphosate does and so that's a bigger problem right because when you're spraying it in the boggy areas that's what the stuff that ends up in the water and that's where you're feminizing the fish you're feminizing the animals and then you ultimately end up feminizing the humans and it goes beyond feminization too some some people don't like to talk about that for political reasons but you know, some people just call it reproductive abnormalities, kind of to hide behind terminology. Right, um, right. But some scientists are being honest and they're calling it feminization, especially behind closed doors. Even at Mayo Clinic, I was talking to a hormone researcher and behind the closed doors, she was, she was perfectly happy to tell me, you know, there's massive feminization problems going on. Um, and, you know, and that's affecting our brain, by the way. It's not just affecting our bodies and our, our reproductive organs. It affects male motivation, for example. You know, in, in rats, if you give them a bunch of these estrogen chemicals, they they just completely are demotivated. Anyway, so so behind closed doors, people are happy. Scientists are happy to say it. But 
you know, I'm just trying to be more open and honest with people. No, no. I mean, it, it, is, it is what it is, you know, <laughs> I can't really hide behind it. Um, so, you know how like, um, in medical terms, like they look at the norms, they look at the mean of what, what population should be for, you know, any given variable, like a, like testosterone or estrogen. And, and that mean has changed over time as our diets change over time. Has there been research, uh, that indicates the data of how our body's testosterone and our body's estrogen has, I'm assuming have somewhat of an inverse relationship over the past hundred years or so? Well, in fact, it goes back even farther. So they've done, uh, you know, studies on these bones that these archaeologists dig up. And I mean, way back, like literally mm -hmm. thousands of years ago, they've proven that testosterone was a lot higher, um, even way back. And then they look at feminization. Again, it's the same thing. They're looking at like the feminization of the, crano, the craniofacial bones and things like this. And just basically how the shape of your face looks. Um, but mm -hmm. what what's more worrisome is that in recent years, and, and by recent I mean the last fifty years, it's just really dropped off. And and yeah, there's definitely this relationship between these artificial estrogens and the testosterone decrease. And I mean, when we started when we started accurately measuring blood levels of testosterone in the 1940s, um, I mean. <laughs> it was a lot higher and it's hard to find that data. And honestly, I don't really have a lot of those studies, but, but I do have studies from the eighties, you know, and the nineties and the two thousands, and you can literally see it almost doubling, you know, just, in, just since then till today. And they've, they've, they've even adjusted the, uh, the normal ranges. I'm sure you've known, you know, it used to, I mean, mm -hmm. men used to be close to 500 nanograms per, uh, deciliter or whatever the units are. I mean, we're around 500 with the total testosterone. And then, you know, they've had to, they've had to drop it because so many men are coming up around 250, around 300. Um, they've dropped the normal range. Right. So, just with the times changing, but it's, it's, it's terrible to do that because then it makes people's expectation of what is normal flawed. Right. And, and they're trying to do that right now. And I talk about this in my book. Um, and I even cite the papers, the scientific papers where they're proposing this. They're trying to do that with puberty right now because the girls are going into puberty so early because of these artificial estrogen chemicals. I mean, you can show that with increased urinary levels of BPA, for example, or phthalates or parabens or whatever, <clears throat> you can show that, you know, these girls go into puberty earlier. I mean, like crazy early, like age eight, you know, and they're mm -hmm. trying to basically rather than say oh we've got an artificial estrogen problem a lot of the doctors there don't even they're not aware of that problem and they're just saying well let's just let's just say that because it's normal now because there's so many people right they're just trying to say well let's just redefine the normal range just like they did with testosterone i mean i've got the chart right in front of me here testosterone in the 80s was about 501 that was the median for what age group um 45 to 70 is a range of people um, in the 90s, it dropped to 435 on average. And then in the 2000s, it dropped to 391. That was about 2000 to 2005. <clears throat> and obviously today, it's even lower. I mean, the trend has continued. So, you know, like I said, even aside from the sensitivity issue, right? Because we're becoming testosterone resistant as well. You know, even mm -hmm. aside from the resistance problem, the numbers are just dropping. So, I mean, 500 down to below 300. You know, see, I got my um, 
I went to Dr. Barry's and got all my labs done and I got a total testosterone of 700 something and I'm 27 years old. So that's good. You know, I feel good about that, but I didn't get my estrogen tested. So I'm, I'm curious to, to get that and see if, if that is, you know, conflicting those receptors so that it, it, the 700 so testosterone is kind of a mute point. At right. That point, and, you know? the, and there's a lot of new research coming out about natural estrogen being protective as long as it's, the, it's all about the ratio. You know what I mean? As long, I mean, if you've got mm -hmm. high testosterone, but you also have high estrogen, if it's not outrageously high, that can actually be protective in, in a lot of ways from heart disease and things like that. It's just when you throw off that balance, you know, your body can balance it pretty well. Unless, and there are definitely people, I do genetic, uh, you know, I have a consulting company where I look at people's 23andMe data. And I look at mm -hmm. a lot of the genes. I mean, one of my focuses and is I look at genes involved in, you know, estrogen, breakdown, estrogen metabolism, testosterone, you know, receptors, just a number of different things related to how your body works in that sense, you know, to try and get a beat on it, to try and figure out what's optimal for people. Um, what does that, what does that cost to have somebody? For me, yeah, I charge $300 for a 60 minute consult. And obviously that requires work before I get on the, the phone or on Skype to analyze it all. And then I give people an Excel sheet with you know, 30 or 40 genes, we sit down and talk about them. And it can range from, you know, I focus on detox, you know, how your liver gets rid of different chemicals that were in our, because a lot of our ancestors, you know, they've never been exposed to these chemicals. These are man-made chemicals, you know, but they're completely artificial. Mm -hmm. And that's a big problem. That's why soy, you know, a lot of the soy research, yes, yeah, soy is an estrogen without a doubt. It's got phytoestrogen, plant estrogen, but our bodies, at least our gut bacteria have mm -hmm. seen that before. And they know how to break it down if you've got a healthy gut bacteria, which a lot of people don't. But, you know, if you do, your body can at least kind of deal with it. You know, I'm not recommending that to people, <laughs> you know, because soy is so high. But Is there any need? Yeah, is there any benefit to consuming any estrogen, even if it's like natural based? Or does your body produce enough naturally that there's, there's absolutely no benefit to consuming estrogen? It depends on the person, right? Like some people, if they need more estrogen, I'm okay with them having some plant estrogens or something, but that's a really unique situation. Across the board, I generally would say, yeah, you definitely don't want, if you're, if you're trying to, you know, lift weights and you're healthy and, you know, yeah, I would avoid soy and flax, to be honest. Flax is another one that's super high. They did a study and I'll give you the numbers because, you know, I don't want you to just have to take my word for it. They did a study in Canada with over a hundred food items mm -hmm. and they were just looking at plant estrogen, how much phytoestrogen content there was. And, you know, like a lot of people, they say, well, yeah, soybeans have a lot of estrogen, but so do chickpeas, right? They've got estrogen. They've got phytoestrogen. Well, chickpeas are at nine, nine micrograms per 100 grams, mm -hmm. right? Um, every food item that was tested on this study, they were under 1,000 except soy and flax and soy and flax were over 100,000 micrograms. <clears throat> Excuse me. So obviously, right. <laughs> that's, that's like a night and day. Yeah, difference, yeah. You know, and what was really interesting too, just to add to that was when they fermented the soy. So actually fermented soy sauce was under 100 micrograms. So in other words, those micro, the microbes can break that stuff down and they do, they love eating the, those, plant estrogens you know but again even today it's kind of a big assumption to assume your gut bacteria is healthy 
You know, that's kind mm-hmm. of an issue. And the studies on soy, they really, and I, I go through this in my book, but they kind of, they're really contradictory. It's like one study will show an increased risk of breast cancer if you have soy, a lot of soy. And then a different study will show a decreased risk of breast cancer if you have a lot of soy. <laughs> like, and it just goes on and on. It's like back and forth. So it's this big mess. And then there's corporate influence because soy is a huge money, you know, it's a, it produces a lot of money. I mean, they consider it, you know, it's on the status of like gold and silver and all these other things, you know, um, coffee, you know, and like some of these products, their currency, you know, soy is, it, it falls into that category. So anyways, um, the point is like, if you're normal, healthy, I just say avoid soy and flax. And yeah, flax has omega-3. It's got, you know, for that, from the omega-3 perspective, flax is awesome compared to soy. From the CBD perspective, flax is awesome compared to soy. Flax actually has CBD, cannabidiol, um, which yeah, obviously I wanted is- to ask you about that. I remember you saying that on a podcast or something, but so so dive into that a little bit. The, the flax has the CBD within the granule itself? Exactly. Just like, uh, yep, just like marijuana or hemp. Um, the plant itself has CBD. Even the, the seed has uh, CBD. And I mean, not a ton of research has been done on that because nobody's really cared that much because hemp is, you know, makes a lot more CBD. But I think that's one of the offsetting benefits, right? Like when you've got flax, it has these really beneficial phytochemicals and then it's got these problematic estrogens. And I think there's kind of this offsetting effect, right? Which, yeah, it confounds the research, but it's still estrogen. Where soy does not have that, right? Right, soy doesn't have any. Yeah, right. Soy is just mostly negative. I mean, again, if you break it down with the gut bacteria, soy has one, one really positive uh, uh, peptide. It's called lunacin, L-U-N-S-I-N, or L-U-N-A-S-I-N, I think, lunacin. Um, and there's only one company that makes it because they have the patent or the, the licensing or something to do with that. Um, and it's called uh, Relive, R-E-L-I-V. And I mean, if you look into the research on Lunacin, it's really positive. So soy has one chemical in it that I'm aware of, and maybe more that I'm not aware of, but certainly one that's positive. But other than that, it's, you know, again, I mean, but all plants, right? Like you look hard enough, you're going to find positives, you're going to find negative, but you're not going to find estrogen. You're going to find that pretty much just in soy and flax. You know? So, so phytoestrogen being estrogen found in the plants, and then the artificial yeah. estrogen is that that's found in like the plastics and everything else that we probably don't even know have estrogen in them, correct? Exactly. Yep. Like the personal care products, the fragrances. It's usually the fragrances, the plastics, and the sunscreens. Those are the real, uh, you know, those are the really the biggest sources. I mean, red red f- food coloring you find that in soap sometimes, but a lot of foods that's pretty easy to avoid the red food dye. So if someone like the skin obviously is the largest organ on your body, and you're putting all these topical solutions that have these estrogen in them, is that more or less a priority to to fix that than those that you consume? Because if you're consuming it, there's going to be less of a protective barrier that the skin provides. Right. Yeah, except with these estrogens, they go through your skin, um, and they've done studies on a lot of these. You know, even even the clothing ones, they've done studies, and I've done YouTube videos on that where they they show they, you know, a lot of these clothing products like these laundry detergents, they're just super scented. You know, I mean, it's crazy. Like when I I use scent free laundry detergent, 
for myself and my kids. I've got four kids and my wife, obviously we all use scent free. And then when we go to the in-laws, um, they have, you know, just the conventional stuff like tide or whatever it is, whatever brand, but it smells like crazy strong and just washing the clothes in the, the washing machine. And then you run them through a dryer without any dryer sheets or anything. And they smell so strong and it takes weeks to get that smell out when you're used to having scent free clothing. And then you do that, you realize there's a ton of carryover with those fragrances and they've done the studies. And again, I've done YouTube videos with the actual citations, the references. Um, the, the YouTube channel I have is the same as my book series. It's called chagrin and tonic, kind of like gin and tonic, except chagrin, like, like, like there's problems and then there's solutions. It's kind of the way I think of it. And, uh, yeah, they've done studies where they, they have these clothing, these clothes that, you know, are exposed to these perfumes that are in the laundry detergent. And then they, and then they do the skin test. They do the, uh, the blood testing and they show it spikes your blood. Is this crazy to me? Yeah, it's crazy. Like I, like, you know, Danny and I are best friends and he's been, he's been in contact with you. And then I've heard through him some of the stuff that you've been talking about and it's just blown my mind. So, so let's just blow people's mind for a minute here. Let's just dive into all these unsuspecting things, you know, like the detergent being one, but what are some other things that people will probably never give a second thought to and it can be putting them at a disadvantage? Yeah. Well, polyester is made, you know, these cl the polyester clothes aren't too bad if you're wearing like a cotton liner underneath, but you know, polyester and a lot of the plastic number one, if you look on the recycling symbol, it's got a little one on it. That's polyethylene terephthalate. And, uh, you know, those have a lot of phthalates, just like polyester. It's the same chemical. I mean, basically people are using plastic to make sheets nowadays, you know, like make bed sheets and make comforters and all this kinds. Of I mean, you'd be surprised if you look up like fleece comforter or just fluffy comforter, warm comforter, whatever on Amazon, like 90% of them are made from uh, polyester, you know, just plastic. They're just pretty much pure 100% plastic. And that plastic is made with phthalates, you know, that's like an integral integral component of it um so those are you breathing that stuff in all night long they've done studies on crib mattresses um and phthalate emissions because they're more concerned yeah so phthalate is a chemical it's kind of like bpa but there's a little difference so <clears throat> bpa is a plastic ingredient right like bisphenol a um it's it's you know they actually de developed it as birth control way back um, but then they discovered it kind of forms this polymer and then they realized it's really shape. You can shape it and morph it and all this. So then they started making things out of, in, you know, using it as a plastic. And and then they, they actually were making it as a plastic and they used to say there's no leaching. So it's okay. That's what we used to, that's what we used to be told when, before you can measure nanograms, <laughs> you know, there was, that was the big argument and scientists were all happy about it. T telling people smugly telling people that it's not a health concern because there's no leaching and that's because bpa it's like legos right like you can link all these bpa molecules together and so the argument was they're all linked together so they're not going to leach but it's not true because sometimes you get a monomer which is like a free lego like an individual lego that's not linked and those are the those are the molecules that leach into the water when you've got a plastic uh bpa bottle and BPA is number seven, by the way. If you look on the bottom of your water bottle and it's got a little recycling symbol with the number seven, that's BPA. Or it's BPS, which is just as bad for you, bisphenol S. And there's a lot of other chemicals they can use to kind of skirt the regulatory system. So if they make BPA illegal, and some states have, these chemicals shift over to BPS, which is just as bad, right? 
Or if they make BPS illegal, then they use BPF. And if they make that one illegal, they use BPAF. And you can just go on and on, right? And there's a scientific paper talking about this, um, about BPA analogs and how they're just as, if not more, estrogenic. They're, in other words, they cause estrogen mm -hmm. symptoms just as much. But anyways, back to phthalates, right? So BPA, they're all linked together. Phthalates are more like, they're like salt. Like I like to uh, use the analogy of salt. So like if you make a tortilla or something and you're mixing up that corn, that's like the main ingredient and then you throw salt in there. And so salt isn't the main ingredient, but it's in there. And phthalates are more like that. They're not, you know, BPA would be more like the main ingredient. Mm -hmm. And the phthalates are usually more like the salt because they change the... Uh, they change the the rigidity and the clarity of the plastics. And they're just as estrogenic too. I mean, they're probably worse than BPA, but nobody talks about phthalates. And that's spelled P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S. And the reason nobody talks about it is because of the spelling and because the word is so weird. So you get the idea, right? I mean, the phthalates, the BPA, they're leaching, you know, and a lot of scientists now with phthalates, they're saying the same thing that they used to say with BPA. They're saying, no, there's no leaching, right? But, you know, as soon as you do the studies, you realize, oh, there's a ton of leaching. It's a real problem. And then they usually, sometimes you hear the argument, well, they're not really that problematic. It's like, well, have you looked at the studies? I mean, right, they're right. really problematic. And again, it's tricky because the normal conventional toxicology that everybody's used to looking at, they don't look that problematic. It's just when you start looking at the, the long-term impacts, that's where you see the real problems. And it kind of stems with, you know, the, the key word there is epigenetics. If you're looking up those studies, you want to look at epigenetic research because that's multi-generational. That's when you change marks on your DNA and, you know, that, that changes that can be passed on to future generations. And how, like how, I mean, I'm assuming like that's like a, almost a generational thing. Like what the decisions I make now can pass over to, to my kids' generation. So just one generation yep. beyond. Yep. And it gets worse in future generations. Like they've discovered that, like, for example, in animal models, they can do these generational studies because animals reproduce a lot quicker. And, and a number of different animal species, um, if you expose them to phthalates and BPA, things like that, estrogen chemicals, um, their fertility drops in the next generation. And the next generation after that, it drops even more. And the next generation after that, it also drops. So it carries on four generations, at least, you know, usually they don't carry the study beyond four. And the reason they choose four specifically is because with the first three generations, you can kind of argue that there was some exposure. Like say the mother is exposed and then the fetuses are exposed in the womb. Gotcha, gotcha. Right? Yeah. So that's a two generational exposure. And then the fetus also has those stem cells for egg or sperm cells. So you could say that three generations are all affected just by one exposure. You can make that argument, right? But then as soon as you have a fourth generation exposure, you can't make that argument anymore. <laughs> You know, now you realize that it is being passed on because there's no way the fourth generation was exposed. Um, see, so I know that's a little complicated, but that's why the fourth generation is so important. That's why I emphasize it. And that's what you see. You see that fourth generation being affected. Yeah, this is like mind blowing, man. Like people probably aren't thinking about how the water bottle they're drinking out of is going to affect their grandkid, their grandkids' children. I know, I know. And you see, right now, I mean, the research is only going to get deeper and deeper. You know, right now we've proven fertility, right? Fertility definitely decreases. We've also shown obesity increases in future generations. And so does breast cancer or certain types of cancer, not just breast cancer, but other types. So you can increase cancer, obesity, fertility. You probably can, you know, impact 
uh, depression. You can probably increase depression in the future. I mean, there's a bunch of probabilities that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm predicting that we're going to see them as in the next 10 years, you know, oh, this happens too. Oh, this happens too. You know, when you start looking at multi-generational studies, it's expensive. Not a lot of people are doing them, but the funding is increasing more and more because it's just so obvious that it's a real problem and it's a real, it's a real issue, right? Like it's actually happening. So like, like with, with keto, for instance, like I, I, I can look at the nutritional things that are out there and I can plan and, and adjust my life accordingly to, you know, counteract a lot of that stuff. And then I, I take this and it's like a whole nother level of human optimization. And I look at some of the negatives out there and the idea of, of beating this is just so much more daunting because it's like, I don't even know where to start, man. I have to like go be a mountain man and wear nothing and, and drink <laughs> out of streams. And I don't even know where to start. Well, what I, what I do in my book is I have a gold, silver, and bronze plan for people. And what that is, is like, if you're a pro athlete and believe me, I do DNA consulting for pro athletes, you know, and, and most of them are baseball, professional baseball players. I was just recently doing an NFL player, you know, and, and if you're in that level, you don't, you don't want to be real extreme. You want to follow the gold plan and really be careful. Right. But if you're a college student, you're on a budget, you don't have time to really like, or you're for whatever reason, you know, you might want to follow the bronze plan and just get the really big ones because filtering your water, for example, with a charcoal filter, and most of them have charcoal, but you want to make sure you'd be surprised how many people send me, you know, their filters and they don't even have activated charcoal. Sometimes they call it carbon and that's okay. It, it's, it's, it's activated charcoal. They use that term synonymously, even though it's not really accurate technically, but if it's got carbon, activated carbon, activated charcoal, you're filtering out your estrogens. That's like a massive thing. You've got to do that. And you can't store the water in plastics, you know? You really shouldn't. It's not that hard. It's not that inconvenient. I mean, the polyester clothes and things like that, I mean, you, can, you don't have to go crazy with that. You know, like I said, it's better if you're wearing 100% cotton undergarments and sleeping in cotton. You know, at least the bed sheets and the pillowcases should be cotton. I'm going to get a leather breech cloth. That's what I'm going to rock from now on. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, cooking and like heating up in plastics, you know, heating stuff in plastics or even just room temperature sitting in plastics. I wouldn't, I don't do that stuff. I store my water in glass, San Pellegrino bottles, or I put it in uh, stainless steel if I'm hiking or something. I don't normally have just like this rapid fire questions that I, that I ask my guests, but I think this would be good and tangible for people listening. But like, I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions of the stuff that you yeah. do on a day to day basis and see, because I'm assuming you probably imply these things that you know. Um, oh, yeah. So, like the water, for instance, you said you put, you drink all out of glass bottles, right? So you just buy like the, you buy the bottles and I guess just recycle those. And cause I was doing that for yep, a while, but yep. it's expensive and I wind up with a whole bunch of glass bottles, but I guess if you're recycling, it kind of justifies it all. That's what I do. Yeah. I buy like a 24 pack of San Pellegrinos and those bottles last me forever, you know? And then for the filters, you don't filter those further, right? Or do you? No, no. I, I actually just installed the uh, reverse osmosis system. Mine, the brand is P-U-R, Pure. Mm-hmm. And it's stainless steel, the whole filtration unit. It, it operates on a pump, so you're not actually storing the, the water in a plastic storage tank. So most reverse osmosis, they filter the water, and then they pump it. Then it goes into this plastic storage tank, mm -hmm. right? Or even if it looks stainless steel, it's got a big plastic bladder inside that keeps the pressure high. Mm -hmm. um, so what I like about this new Pure one, P-U-R, and I don't make any money from any of these kind of endorsements and, or supplements or any of that stuff because I want to stay unbiased. Um, but I love this pure one because again, it pumps it, you know, you don't have any storage tank. It's all stainless, 
You just attached that to the end of your faucet? Yeah, yeah. I, I did all the plumbing myself. I drilled into the uh, quartz countertop and put a little spigot thing on there. And yep. And then it goes underneath the sink. It's like four filtration. It has activated carbon. It's got a cotton filter, which gets rid of the big giant particles like iron and stuff. And then it gets or chunks of stuff. And then it and then it has activated charcoal. Then it has the reverse osmosis filter. And then it has a remineralizer. So it has a four-stage filter. So there's like four tubes hanging down from this big metal thing. Man, um, <laughs> like as we're talking, I'm thinking back on like all the things that I've all the mistakes I've made, you know, growing <laughs> up. And I remember like oh, me too. it'd be me a hot, too. hot summer day, like a water hose, a yard hose oh, yeah. full of yeah. water. Just getting all that plastic. I would just drink out of that, man. Yeah, right. Well, at least that's once in a while. And I'm okay. Like when I travel, you know, I was just in Baltimore giving a talk for the Weston A. Price. And, you know, I was in California the week before that. I'll grab a plastic bottle here and there, you know, and of course mm -hmm. it scandalizes people. But it's just the way it is when you're, it's not that big of a deal once in a while. The problem is it's the everyday stuff, you know? Right, and, right. And, so and, and, and just so you know, I have on my, on my website, AJ Consulting Company. Mm -hmm. com. I have a page. It's called what I use. It's like ajconsultingcompany.com slash what I use. It's all one word. I list, you know, like the soap I use, the shampoo I use. The, and it's not an exhaustive list at all. It's not like here's every product that's awesome, right? Because there's a lot of good ones out there. But it, but but I find I've over the years, I found some fairly inexpensive ones that are good. And that's hard to do. <laughs> well, I'll link up to that for sure. Then that make things easy. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then I include all kinds. I have that pure water filter on there. I also use a Berkey water filter, you know. Um, so anyways, just the stuff I use, right? Yeah. Cause I mean, like, I, I don't know, like the, I did not even recognize that some of the stuff that we're trying to avoid is, is in the stuff I'm using, like the parabens and your, you know, shampoo, like your shampoo and soap and whatnot. Like I, I didn't know it was a thing. And then I started going to the grocery store and buy a stick of deodorant and it's in everything. Right. And the, the problem, the bigger problem too is, even if it doesn't say on the label, they oftentimes will have it because they're allowed to put it under the term fragrance. There's uh -huh. a cool documentary. There's a documentary they just put on Netflix. It's been out for a while, but they just put it on Netflix. It's called Stink, like S-T-I-N-K. And it's about this father. His, his wife uh, got breast cancer and died. And then that left this dad with a couple of daughters. And now he's a stay-at-home dad. And he started and he, and he bought one of his daughters some pajamas from a real high-end store. And then they smelled like chemicals. And he's like, what the hell? You know, he doesn't want his daughters getting breast cancer later in life and all this. So he started researching. He had, a, he had an actual chemical analysis done, like professional analysis done and what chemicals were in those pajamas. And it came back with phthalates and all this stuff. And then he started going down the rabbit hole. And the, the documentary is all about just the perfumes and the fragrances and what they sneak into them under the term fragrance. So they don't even have to list phthalates on the label, but they're in there, you know, most of these. Do you use like a cologne or anything like that? I, I'm okay with people doing that. I, I don't. I just never have. But if you want to use something like that, don't spray it on your skin. You know, spray it on your clothes and let them take the damage. I know there's like some extra fragrance you get if it's on your skin. There's like another layer, but it's not worth it, you know. Like if you're if you're an expert, like experts in in uh, fragrances or perfumes, they they talk about... You know, like, like there's a fragrance just to the fragrance, but then when you spray it on your skin, there's some breakdown and that gives it another layer of fragrance. I can't remember what it's called, but anyways, it's not worth it if, you know, so I tell people, go ahead and use that stuff. Just don't spray it directly on your skin. Gotcha. gotcha. But even breathing it in is a little bit of a concern, but so you don't want to overdo it there either. <laughs> you know? Right. What about like, um, 
like birth control and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of females use birth control. So just kind of dive into that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I do. In my book, I have a ton of stuff on that. I mean, I would avoid it. I've, uh, obviously, you don't want to be drinking any, accidentally in your drinking water, but certainly taking it is also a problem. You know, it, the reason it's designed, the way it's designed is, you know, it mimics estrogen. You've got 17 alpha ethenyl estradiol as the active ingredient in most birth controls, birth control pills. And that chemical is designed not to be broken down by your body. It's designed to stay in your body longer, to have a bigger impact at a lower dose. Um, so it's real robust, you know, like bacteria aren't breaking that down very well. That's why it stays in the water supply so long. Um, and yeah, I mean, I go into the whole breast cancer issue, like suicides are increased in birth control users. You know, a lot of this stuff, you know, when you see like fat, you know, increases in fat and all this, I mean, there's a couple things. Number one, everybody's being exposed to these chemicals, like the plastics, especially. So mm -hmm. it's hard to do a study and to make these arguments because everybody's There's exposed. No control group. So you can't have the control, right? And they've done the studies where they go up to northern Alaska and they find native tribes and they use those as control groups. But then you can make the argument, well, but their genetics are so different, their lifestyles are different, their diets are different. You know, it's not the best control. And that's true. So it's really difficult to study it. But, you know, there's, there's ways and I talk, I kind of go through some of that in my book. That's the first thing, right? I mean, when you're talking about all these chemicals, not just birth control, but with birth control, obviously there's a ton of money behind it. There's, you know, so that influences a lot of the science. I go through that in my book. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a messy situation, right? I mean, like with birth control, I mean, there's like, there's a. You got like the the pills, which is probably the most common. You know, most it seems like most females are taking that just simply to avoid a lot of the the, the pain and inconvenience of, of having a period. Which it, it's kind of crazy in the first place. But having a cycle is a totally natural biological thing. So to avoid it completely is very counter to the, the human uh, biology that we have. But you know, like they've got the the IUDs and all the the implants and everything now. Like, is there one better than the other? Or are they all just Terrible. You know, what I tell people to do is use the, there's an app that, that was recently developed. It's over 99.9% .9 successful if you actually follow it. And it's, it's related to, uh, natural family planning, NFP. Mm -hmm. Um, there's another term for that, you know, but basically you should check out that app. And I, I mentioned in my book, I even have a footnote in my book that where people can look it up specifically because I literally can't remember it off the top of my head. I talk about so many different things and I'm not a woman, right? I, I don't use it, but my wife definitely does. And it's good to have a, uh, an understanding of that. That's the most natural way by far. Um, and what I was going to say before too, about the, the pill and about all of these, the, the health impacts is, you know, when you're looking for these health impacts, just think of pregnancy, right? Think of when a woman gets pregnant, what do you see? You see fat, you see increased adiposity, meaning you see more fat. And the reason mm -hmm. for that is because fat is an efficient storage form of energy. It's the most efficient storage form. So your body stores more fat. And that way, if you don't have access to nutrition, the fetus at least can get energy, right? It can, it, you can burn the fat. Now, obviously, these days, we don't have the problem with access to nutrition, but our ancestors did, you know? We, we didn't always mm -hmm. have just unlimited access to food. So you see increased fat. Depression is interesting, right? Because if you see, you, you see a lot of postpartum depression, you know, when you throw your hormones off, especially estrogen, it acts on your brain. You've got receptors in your brain and you see depression. Um, you see 
obviously fertility issues because these things are acting on the on the you know on these eggs and sperm and all this so basically my point is when you start looking at pregnancy which is you know during pregnancy by the way estrogen spikes really high it's in the thousands right you can actually see a lot of that being mimicked with these chemicals you know what i mean you see breast tissue development for example so like during pregnancy you get breast tissue development that's perfectly normal during you know when you're exposed to a lot of these artificial estrogen chemicals you get a lot of breast cancer you get abnormal breast development type stuff you get gynecomastia stuff like that especially if you've got uh problems metabolizing and breaking them down getting them out of your body um a lot of people do you know whenever i find people with these gene issues breaking down these artificial estrogen almost inevitably they've got man boobs you know they've got yeah gynecomastia and so it's really predictable it's really powerful to have that knowledge um for a number of different ways you know when you've got your when you're doing your 23 and me but anyways i mean that's usually what i'm looking at i'm looking at things that mimic pregnancy but in an abnormal um you know disrupted way so uh, women listen to this should just get that app and then get off of all these birth control pills and yeah i think so and, and you don't remember the name of that app off the top of your head you said no i'm sorry i mean I, if i had my book in front of me i would zing over there but <laughs> i don't have it in front of me I'll link, I'll find it and link out to that for sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. And you said something else that really caught my interest. And that's like when you, you store this in the fat that, that you, your body stores and like your, your adipose tissue, you store these estrogens, uh, these artificial estrogens. And then as you're, you know, burning that fat, it releases that and that could cause a plateau and weight loss or whatever it is you're, you're trying to do. So like that translates to me, you know, I'm trying to put this on like a timeline. So say I'm, I'm in an off season, for instance, and I'm trying to eat, you know, a caloric surplus, build more muscle that inevitably comes to putting on a little body fat. Let's say that there's a month during that, you know, six month time span where I start eating a bunch of, you know, foods high in phytoestrogens and artificial estrogens, and then don't think anything of it, just going about my business. Then when I start to transition to a, a cutting phase where I'm trying to lose body fat, when it gets to the point where my body's burning that layer of fat, that releases those estrogens and I basically hit a standstill for the time that it takes me to burn through that in a right, sense. Right. Well, it doesn't release them. They just stay in there and they keep telling your body to hang on to that fat. You know what I mean? And so your point is taken. I mean, what I tell people in my book and, and, and when I'm speaking and things, get in the sauna. That's how you expedite it. That's how you get them out. You know, you've got to speed up the molecular motion. You've got to heat it up. You got to, infrared saunas are awesome. They heat up, heat you up from the inside. But you got to have the heat. You know, you have to have, it has to be hot. You know what I mean? Man. That, that's why, the, and they've done studies. They call them bus studies. They're BUS, blood, urine, and sweat um, mm -hmm. on phthalates and BPA. So they've, they've shown that people that sit in saunas compared to the control population that doesn't sit in saunas, or even, you can even use yourself as a control. And they show that, um, you know, if you're sitting in a sauna, you're sweating out phthalates, you're sweating out BPA, you're sweating all these chemicals out. They've, they, they, it, it's like a nicotine patch, except without the nicotine. They just put them on the skin, and then they take the patch off, and, and then they measure all the chemical crap that they're, you're sweating out. Is it like a particular temperature that sauna needs to be at to, to really maximize that? Yeah, the, well, most of the sauna studies that are, have shown all these, these all-cause mortality decreases, so you don't <laughs> – I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, but like, you know, cancer goes down with sauna use. 
Alzheimer's mm-hmm. goes down, all these brain diseases, you know, heart disease goes down, everything, all cause mortality decreases with sauna use. And those ones, those studies are done at 180 degrees. So it's really hot. You know, a lot of people are sitting in a 140 degree sauna and they think they're doing good. And I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that, like, I don't, I haven't seen, I haven't done enough research to see like dose dependency and all that. I'm sure it's there, but I would just go with the studies on all cause mortality where they did, you have to do it three times a week at least 10 minutes, somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes at 180 degrees. That's what they did. That's what's effective or that was most effective. And, you know, so that's ideal. You know, obviously less than that is better than nothing. Right. And I personally think, I think one of the reasons, one of the main reasons sauna using a sauna is so beneficial is because we're, we're so overexposed to these artificial estrogen chemicals, right? So that's why we're decreasing all these health problems. You know those like red, those um, uh, red light there? I don't even know what they are. I've never used them. Yeah, but, like, infrared. Infrared in, in like the Planet Fitnesses. Every Planet Fitness has one of those pretty good. Those are great, yeah. I mean, I personally, I'm doing research on with this, uh, the Juve light. At the, Mayo, mm-hmm. at the Mayo Clinic, I'm using a Juve light to reprogram stem cells. I have a bunch of data from that. Um, because, you know, infrared also changes epigenetic marks and uh, in a beneficial way, it increases nitric oxide. It does a lot of really unique things. And I, f- I also discovered, and I haven't published this yet, but I discovered that the infrared increased FGF7, um, which is a little too, you know, technical to get into. But basically, I leveraged that into doing some research on the lungs and asthma and COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. <clears throat> so I'm also doing some research on the lungs. And, you know, trying to improve health of lungs from with infrared because nobody's really done that at all. No, no, no studies are out there on that. But, yeah, there's a ton of benefits that are unique to infrared, not just with the heat, but just the wavelength. Is there any, like, uh, is an infrared sauna going to give you the same benefits as, like, the Juve light or does the Juve light have an advantage over the other? Juve, Juve light, is, well, the Juve is the infrared. I mean, the reason I like the Juve is because it's really high quality and I know what I'm getting. You know, some of these infrared lights, the cheap ones. Yeah, hit and miss. They're not putting out, well, yeah, exactly. They're not putting out a therapeutic dose, right? They're not, they're not even giving you, a, you know, like the proper amount of infrared to actually have any benefits. So you're just wasting your time. Um, I like the Juve because, you know, if you're doing 10 minutes on the Juve, you, you know, you're in, you're getting a therapeutic dose. And there's genes I look at too, by the way. I look at these nitric oxide synthase genes that are, you know, a lot of athletes have. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have those genes, I'm telling people, you know, like drink your beet juice, you know, or eat beets and get that infrared going because you've got to get your nitric oxide up if you want to perform optimally. And similar with your brain, because some people have genetic dispositions to Alzheimer's that are related to a, a protein called BDNF. Mm-hmm. BDNF is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And if you've got those genes... I also want people using an infrared on their head. I want it right up against their skull. They've done studies on cadavers. The infrared gets in through your skull and it gets about three inches in and it increases BDNF. That's one of the benefits of infrared and it protects against Alzheimer's. It actually decreases amyloid plaque, you know, in mice and animal studies and things like that. And this is all stuff that you would dive into with the the 23andMe raw data? Yeah, it's exciting. You know, there's so many things. I'm trying to write little handbooks on it. I'm so busy, you know, with all this stuff because I'm doing DNA analysis almost every day. Well, tell you what, man. I mean, I I have my 23andMe data. What I'd love to do is is I'll get that raw data. I'll send it to you. I'll I'll pay you 300 bucks and we'll have to do another podcast and we'll just dive into my specific results and we'll put it all on air. We should. Yeah, I've done that a few times. Yeah, a lot. Give, Give our... 
give our audience like extra time, like at least an hour and a half, because with that, you know, normally if it was just me and you, I'd go pretty quick. And, you know, if you know something, I just go past it. But if we're, if we've got an audience listening, I'll dive in a little deeper in terms of giving some background and, you know, let's, making it simpler in some aspects. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. Sure. We can do it. That sounds fun. Yeah. I love doing that. What about uh, like cold therapy? Is there any, any integration as it relates to these estrogens and whatnot? Well, no, not really. Um, that's one of the, th- <laughs> one of the things I think is, I think cryotherapy itself, like when you go super cold for a short amount of time, mm-hmm. there's a lot of really good benefits, but it's all related to inflammation. The cold shower thing I think is kind of overhyped. I don't think there's that much benefit. In fact, cold showers actually can decrease your testosterone. And a lot of people viscerally just react against me. I mean, that's uh, the one YouTube video I have a lot of dislikes on. All of my videos, I hardly have any dislikes. But the one the one or two I have are on cold showers and how they decrease testosterone because they do. You know, like the people that work in cold uh, refrigerators mm-hmm. or if they work in freezers, they have crazy low testosterone. You know? Why is that exactly? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, it has something to do with how, you know, how just the cold temperature decreasing your production within your testes mm-hmm. when it's when it's cold enough but for, with cryotherapy is unique because um you're getting hit so quick and then you're getting out so quick and it's such a, it, it, it's more like exercise right like it's more within the sweet spot you know where you're um you know it's a it's a rabbit hole i don't want to get too far down because it but my main point what i want to say is it's related to inflammation and not really impacting the estrogen except in the sense of testosterone. Right. So as far as like just best practices for optimization, like I should, if I'm going to do cold therapy, I should do cryotherapy as opposed to doing these ice baths that everybody's doing right now. And then I should just get an infrared, the juve light and uh, stick to that. Right. And, and, or a sauna. Yeah. Straight up. If you have access to a sauna, I mean, <clears throat> the Mayo Clinic, they've got a sauna. And so I use that every time I go to the gym. And what I do is I, after I work out, I use the sauna. So I'm already hot. You know, I've already, I'm already a little bit sweaty, maybe, you know, and then the sauna really kicks it out. <laughs> it really amps it up. And uh, I think that's huge, hugely beneficial. Yeah, there's, there's been a couple of things that I've like specifically honed in on and wanted to implement going forward, especially the next time I do a competition prep. And one of those is 100% going to be, I'm going to get like a little, like a little barrel sauna or something, you know, nothing crazy big, nothing too expensive, and just have that at my house so I can, or at my warehouse, I guess, so I can jump in that barrel sauna whenever I need to. Yeah, I have a friend, he's making his own, you know, he's making it just a frame and then he's putting in, I don't I don't know, I'm sure there's YouTube videos on how to make them fairly cheap mm-hmm. if you have the space for it, but yeah, exactly, as long as it's not made from plastic. <laughs> you know, yeah. Some of these little single, single person saunas you sit in, they're all lined with plastic. That's a huge issue. No, this is this is incredibly insightful, man. Like, like I don't know of anybody else in the space that's just really diving into, you know, epigenetics and how that is related to and affected by all the phytoestrogens and artificial estrogens that are just running rampant right now. But this is, I mean, this is like a the next level deep. Like everybody's, you know, hot on the macronutrients, the keto diet, what you got to do, you grass fed, grain fed, all that. But going into this layer is like taking it to the next level for sure. Yeah, especially with keto, right? Because I'm a huge keto fan. I love doing keto. I don't do it all the time, but I do I do extreme keto for like 30 mm-hmm. days here and there where I do like the 80% fat, you know, 
15% protein, 5% carb. I mean, what I consider like the real keto, <laughs> like, like, it's like therapeutic, you know? And, uh, man, it's so beneficial. My brain amps up so much. I just, I, I was consulting with somebody from San Francisco on stem cells recently. Mm -hmm. He's doing the stem cell injections and whatnot. And, and somebody, so this, you know, Jillian Michaels, right? Yeah. I think everybody does right now. <laughs> Did you see her video with uh, on this, how bad keto is for you or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so ironic because this guy sent me this video and she basically said that it, it, uh, it, it'll increase aging, right? It basically, it, uh, and what was her punchline, right? Um, shoot, I'm forgetting what, what, what the video something about the telomeres or something telomeres, like that. That's what it was. Thanks. Yeah. And what's funny is number one, there's no direct studies that have been done one way or other, but the, but the studies on aging and, and reactive oxygen species and all this other stuff she was talking about shows that mm -hmm. keto is like exactly the opposite of what she was saying. It's, it's beneficial <laughs> like for aging. It's protective against aging. You know, it's so funny. And it's such a, you know, it's, it's such a strange thing to me that the research would show something and then somebody mm -hmm. that influential would come out and say the total opposite. It's like, where is that coming from? So anyways, I'm a huge, I'm a huge keto fan. <laughs> yeah. And from just like a total human optimization standpoint, man, like it doesn't make sense in my mind that I could feel and perform as good as I do now with keto. Like all my blood works improved, my testosterone, my just day-to-day -day productivity and how I feel mentally and, and physically. Like it doesn't make sense for me to have that quantum leap in improvement and then just die die sooner. Like it, it just doesn't add up. And they've done studies. I mean, there's studies with ketone bodies mimic lifespan extending properties of calorie restriction. I think is one of the, it's like a title in one of the papers. I think. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, again, it's like the total the research that has been done is totally the opposite of what she was saying. So, and there's a lot of that kind of misinformation, but I don't know where people are getting that. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, from like a longevity standpoint, because I'm trying to constantly balance, you know, total human performance increase and also, you know, long-term longevity. Because sometimes they they don't necessarily go hand in hand, like from a bodybuilding perspective, going to one extreme. I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of the things that people, bodybuilders do is not best for longevity. Um, so I'm trying to balance that, but, you know, following the keto diet now I'm taking an interest towards you know, all these estrogens and whatnot. I think I think those two in tandem, hand in hand, play a massive role in just extending your overall health and well being. Right. Yeah, you can't go wrong when you're when it's helping your bodybuilding and you're helping your physique and it's helping your lifespan, right? And they've done by the way, just as an aside, they've done studies on aging with a couple of these chemicals. Mm -hmm. They haven't really do scientists haven't gone down that path too much with you know, these chemicals, but I know for sure parabens and I think phthalates, they've done studies on fruit flies and it, it decreases their mm -hmm. lifespan overall. Um, I don't remember why, but I, I don't think I've done any YouTube videos on it. I haven't done a ton of research on it. I mentioned the studies in my book and I referenced them and I wrote an article for uh, AACP or whatever the big, you know, <laughs> the, the, uh, the geriatric organization is. Um, mm -hmm. Anyways, uh, um, yeah, there's definitely some like direct lifespan relationship here with some of the, at least some of these chemicals, perhaps all of them. And it's not surprising, man. I mean, like even, even stuff done in animal studies and not human studies, there's always that argument of it's the one done in human studies. But I mean, yes, I agree with that. But you look at what's happening to these animals. I mean, that's not putting them in a natural environment in the first place. It's like, there's got to be some correlation, like humans are going to feed off of that in some way, you know? 
and it's by the way it's aarp is what i meant to say <laughs> the, the uh huh. that giant organization i i think that's anyways um with the animal studies i've done the animal studies right i've done rabbit studies i've done mouse studies what's really funny to me now looking back on a lot of the studies that i used to do is we're feeding these animals fats like canola oil or something and guess where you get you walk in the walk-in freezer or the walk-in refrigerator i mean and you get these you get these bags of canola oil right plastic bags you know what i mean and then you feed mm -hmm. it and so there's there's obvious problems right because you're inject you're basically giving these animals a ton of artificial estrogen along with the fats and the fats themselves aren't even great to begin with they're all these hyper processed fats and then they, a lot of these studies make these claims, these broad claims that fats are bad for you. And sometimes they don't even find anything bad, even with those crazy cases, because the studies are so short term. But then they look at the LDL or whatever, and then they say, oh, the LDL is high, so it must be bad for you. So then they make the claim that it's bad for you anyways, right? So it's this crazy, like, right, right. This, it's, it's this weird confirmational bias, you know, ad, attributional bias stuff. And, and confounding stuff, right? Like even the cell culture research, you know, go away, going away from the animals for a second and going just down to the cells. You take out some human cells, you put them in a dish. Oh, wait, what's the dish? Oh, it's made from plastic, right? And then, you know, what's the liquid you're pouring on the cells? To, you know, you've got this fake blood that you grow cells in. It's called media, M-E-D-I-A, just like media, you know, like TV. While you're growing them in media, mm -hmm. the media comes from plastic jars. <laughs> you know, like you're, everything's in plastic. And what happens? Most of the cells die. You know, if I took some skin cells, if I punched, did a muscle biopsy and tried to grow those muscle cells, most of your cells are going to die. And that's just like, I mean, like crazy, like 70% of them will die. And most scientists... It's crazy how many studies have been done in these plastic petri dishes that probably is not even accurate anymore. And most people overlook the fact that what you're doing is you're selecting cells that are resistant to estrogen. You know what I mean? Because the ones that can't mm -hmm. handle that high artificial estrogen load, they're just dying. And the ones that are surviving, they're pretty resistant to estrogen. And then you add some more estrogen on top and those cells do fine. And then you're like, oh, look, estrogen doesn't really hurt the cells. Well, that's because you already killed all the ones that, that does hurt the cells, right? Like those cells are all dead. D dive into, you, you're talking about the, the types of fat there for a moment. Um, that would be really relevant to any of the keto dieters because i mean we're having a higher fat ratio so kind of touch on that a little i wouldn't personally i never use uh even if it's olive oil i never buy it in a plastic jar that's key you just can't i mean mm -hmm. because yeah water leaches into i mean i mean plastic leaches into water but it leaches even more into fats because it's more like mm -hmm. fats that's why it goes through your skin right that's why these hormones and these artificial hormones they go through your skin because they're it's called hydrophobic meaning they float on top of water so you can get a certain amount of them in mm -hmm. water. Nanogram levels go into the water just fine, but they, they love going into the fats. They love leaching in fats. So when you're buying oils and fats and like coconut oil, I, I make a huge point to find glass containers. And MCT oil is the same thing. Like I don't buy, you know, the stuff that they sell in plastics, even, you know, even if it's supposedly estrogen free, um, I, I go out of my way to find that stuff in glass for sure. Liquids, you know, like solids, it's okay. You know, if you're putting, if you've got yeah, a, a good like a, a bunch of bacon you already cooked and you want to throw it in a plastic Tupperware, that's perfectly fine. Like there's no issue there. But if you've got a bunch of bacon grease and you're pouring it into a plastic Tupperware, I have an issue with that. You're going to have a lot of estrogen coming out of that plastic. I know. Fish right? since it's hot. Yep. Heat increases, duration increases it. So just how long the thing is sitting in there. 
so these plastic water bottles, you know, that are sitting in the grocery store for years or whatever, who knows how long that's increasing it. Um, and then the, the, just the hydrophobicity. So the, the chemical structure can increase it. Like if it's fat or, or if it's water or fat based. And as far as the fats go, like these, these vegetable based, uh, like canola oils and whatnot, I'm assuming they all have higher estrogen levels, artificial estrogen levels, even independent of the packaging, right? Honestly, not sure about that either one way or the other. I don't think it's been tested because most of the time when, you know, there's so much money behind those that what they're looking for is positive things rather mm -hmm. than negative things. <laughs> most of the studies with things like canola oil or right, soy, right. soy oil. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's more to do with the plastic packaging and then the, the health problems from like canola oil would be more from the oxidation and the processing and things like that. Um, some of these chemical byproducts, but I've not seen a study that just shows how much phthalates are in those if they're stored in glass. I don't think ones. I don't think they've done it. I don't think it's been done. This is this is fascinating, man. Like this, this is you giving me like a lot of really tangible things to do. That like, there's so many podcasts and just information pieces out there that you know there's not a whole lot of actual actionable steps that come from it. But this is all very like you know this is what's happening. This is how to fix it. So I really enjoy this. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's what I try and do. I, you know, no sense being all theoretical and then you can't do anything about it. <laughs> Same yeah, with 23 yeah. and me, right? Like the DNA, that's my whole purpose is like, yeah, you can find these cool genes that are really interesting and, you know, dive way down into it. But it's like, if you can't do anything, you know, who, who cares if you're fast twitch or slow twitch muscle fiber type? But if like the fast twitch guys, if they can do more eccentric movements and that amplifies their weight training, well, then that's interesting, right? Like if you can do something, be cut based on the knowledge that you've gained well then then you're onto something in my mind oh yeah 100 percent. i definitely want to take you up on that man i'll get i'll get you all of my raw data okay and then we'll do another podcast like follow up round two yeah and you could you can tell me why i can't grow a beard <laughs> <laughs> sounds good yeah awesome man well, well dr j where can people go to find out more about you yeah just the aj youtube the chagrin and tonic channel and then or you can just type in drj like just those three letters or hashtag drj into youtube and a bunch of my videos will come up and then on on my my website is really where i direct people it's ajconsultingcompany.com and, and what's what's the book name estro generation how estrogenics are making estrogen. you fat sick and infertile awesome i will i will link out all of those i'm gonna get that book too because you reference it several times this podcast and you've got me interested for sure. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. I'm looking forward to the follow-up podcast. Yeah, yeah, I am as well. I'm going to I'm gonna get that to you ASAP and we'll make that happen. Good, great. Well, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it, man, and, and we'll be in touch. All right, take care. Take care.